You guys can have a seat. Good morning. You got your Bibles? Grab them. As I've been saying the last couple of weeks, go somewhere because we'll be everywhere. Um, this morning in our doctrinal series here that we're doing over the summer where we're just walking through our doctrinal statement, we're going to be um, speaking about the doctrine of man, the sinfulness of man, um, as it is sometimes more formally called, sometimes uh, anthropology. So theology is the study of God. The first week we studied the doctrine of the Trinity, and then the next week the doctrine of the Father, what you might call uh, theology proper. And then the next week was Christology, the study of Christ. Then the week after that, pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. And now we're going to be speaking about anthropology today, the study of man, what the Bible says about us. So we, it's, the order of these um, is somewhat important. I mean, we could go through them in different, in different orders, I suppose, and put it all together. But uh, there is some rhyme and reason to it, is that we need to always start with God and who he is. And, and in fact... Uh, the big idea, if you hear nothing else that I say today, is this, is that you can't know who you are apart from understanding who God is. Is that the great mistake of our, of not just our time, but I think of humanity in general, um, is that we look to ourselves to try to figure out who we are. And it's just simply not the way it works. Um, we are created, as we're going to talk about this morning, in God's image. And in Christ, we are born again and we're being made into the image of Christ, um, and it's only through looking away from ourselves and to him that we can understand our identity, and we've got some identity issues, amen? We do. As a, as a people, as human beings on this planet, because of sin, we've got identity issues of all sorts, and it is because we have not looked to the one who is given us life and who holds our very breath in his hand. So if you got one of these handouts this morning, <coughs> I'm going to begin by just reading the bold letters at the top, which is our formal, kind of our formal doctrinal statement as a church at Mercy Hill. Um, I haven't said this in a couple weeks. The rest of this stuff, these, these, um, some of these historic catechisms and creeds and confessions that you'll find, we do not like necessarily officially adopt the, have adopted those as a church. The, what's in bold is kind of our official doctrinal statement. But we're big believers in looking um, to godly men throughout history and really kind of standing on the shoulders of giants throughout history that have gone before us. And many of these men have laid down their lives uh, for the truth uh, as it's taught in God's word and, and that have put some of these historic creeds, confessions, and catechisms together. We, we find them helpful, um, but they're definitely, all these things are definitely supplemental to the word of God itself. But let me just read the doctrinal statement there, just a few lines at the top uh, of that handout. We believe that man was created in the image and likeness of God, but that through Adam's sin, the race fell, inherited a sinful nature, and became alienated from God. Man is totally depraved and of himself utterly unable to remedy his lost condition. So let me just go through and unpack that. I know it's not a whole lot. It's shorter than some of the other ones. But let me just unpack what this means. We believe that man was created in the image and likeness of God. In the beginning, in Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion 
over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over everything that creeps on the earth. Now the two little words there that are used are image and likeness. They're, they're the Hebrew words selem and damut, and they, they're very similar. They're almost used interchangeably. They're not quite synonymous. The first word, uh, selem, that is uh, translated English, or, or in English as, as the word image there in that verse, um, it, it's the idea of being simply similar to something or something else, but that word carries with it a little bit more uh, of the nuance of maybe also being representative of something, which I think fits within the context of those verses. Again, in Genesis 1, if you hear it says, after he says, let us create man in our image and in our likeness, he then says we're going to give them dominion. So man was representative of God on the earth, created by God to rule over all of creation. And this idea of being created in God's image uh, is, is, is very important, um, is that we were kind of the crown jewel of God's creation. And we still are, even though that's been marred by sin, which we'll, which we'll get to here in a little bit. But it, the idea of being an, an image bearer of God is that mean in all the ways that we were created, but not, not just in the way that we look, okay? Because God is spirit, okay? And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. In fact, it's... it's um, it's forbidden in the Bible to try to create an image of God um, because, it, because it can't be done. But we are his image bearers, not just simply in the, the way that we're created, but the nuance of our entire being, body, soul, and spirit. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about some of these. Uh, I, know, I know Conrad just this past week was on vacation and went to Washington, D.C., and uh, I believe he went probably to the Lincoln Memorial. I know he went to some of them, but if you guys have ever been to the Lincoln Memorial, you've got a big statue in there of Abraham Lincoln. Now, this is a tough question, okay, so follow me. That statue of Abraham Lincoln, who is that supposed to remind you of? Very good, very good. I knew, I, I knew you'd get that one. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a statue, and it's... it's place there, that image is placed there to remind us of him. We're not statues. We are infinitely more complex than a statue because God created us. We didn't create us. God created us. But we are made to remind everybody that sees us, and so we're all, everybody's seeing everybody, to point us back to God. Um, We're not to point to ourselves Our very existence is to point away from ourselves and to God. We were created in his likeness and in his image. And here, although this is the way God originally created us, though you can't, um, this is of the utmost importance in speaking of our sin and really understanding the very nature of our sin. Um, Jesus simply said it like this, to whom much is given, much is required. And as God's image bears, as the crown jewel of all of creation, it makes our sin all the worse. The severity of an offense increases with the dignity of the one that we've offended. Okay, so follow me on this one. Is that, you know, <laughs> the example I usually use is like if you've got a coworker or something, and you guys are, I don't know, one of them screws up or you screw up or something, and one of you calls the other one a moron or a, or a goofball or something. Maybe it's just coworker. It's, it's no big deal. Ah, you goofball, what are you doing? You mess that up. But if you say that to your boss, right, the offense increases with the dignity of the one offended, right? So follow me. 
we've offended God, <laughs> okay? Like we have offended, our sin is not just against other people, although we sin against one another, our sin is against him. So the graveness of the offense is increased exponentially because he is infinitely holy, right? But not only does the severity of the offense increase with the dignity of the one offended, it also increases with the privilege and the status of the one committing the offense. It increases, the severity of the offense increases with the privilege and status of the one committing the offense. To give somewhat of an example, this is why we are especially appalled, although all people are just people, whether they hold positions of leadership or not, but this is why we're especially appalled, or we tend to be especially um, put off and outraged, when uh, someone in a position of power or a politician or anyone that's holding any sort of a special position of power sins or messes up or, or we, it comes to found out that, that is involved in some sort of scandal is because, again, the offense increases with the privilege and status of the one committing the offense. Now understand this, is that in terms of all of God's creation, in everything that has been made, we are the ones with the greatest privilege and status. He told the trees to grow and they grew. He told the fish to swim and they swam. He told the ostrich and the giraffe to do whatever it is that they do. I don't really know for sure, because I'm not one, but whatever. And they, and they did it. And he told Adam and Eve to enjoy all that he had created, to be satisfied in him, to trust him, to trust his word. But they did not do it. And we were all in Adam, as we're going to talk more about in a little bit. And we all do the same thing. He commands us to satisfy ourselves in him. That is our command. To trust him. And we do not do it. The severity of our sin is great. It is great. Greater than what we like to acknowledge. Um, continuing on, just in speaking a little bit about the image of God, there there's so many ways in which we, we bear God's image. I don't think that the Bible boils it down just to a few. I just think it's any way in which we reflect the greatness of God. But there are spiritual aspects that we're able to relate to God um, in ways that uh, uh, animals can't. Your dog has never spent any time in intercessory prayer for anybody. It's never happened. But we, we, we do. We have the ability to interact with God like that. There are mental aspects creative aspects to our being that reflect the glory of God. Um, birds have been building nests for ever, I guess. You know, they've never, you know, begun to build little bird condos or, you know, like, like the complexity never increases. But man has increased in the things that we, we build and, and technology and the things that we, we come up with. But again, in all those things on one level, it displays the glory of God, but there's also darkness woven in with it because sin has tainted absolutely, absolutely everything. Um, in terms of philosophy and reasoning, uh, animals don't do this. You know, there is no philosophical history of horses or cows because they don't do that, but there is for us. Um, and then our bodies themselves created with extreme complexity, even after sin, 
Even after sin entered the world in the garden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, his one and only command, uh, which was to not take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, but instead to trust him. They did not do that. Even after the fall and even after the flood, even after the, every thought of man's heart being only ever evil continually, as the Bible says in Genesis chapter 6, God commands Moses uh, in Genesis 9, 6, he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own, own image. And the point simply being is that even after sin, even though all of us bear the mark of our father Adam and are tainted in every um, aspect of our being with sin, we still bear the image of God. And it's really important because every human being, no matter how marred by sin, illness, weakness, disability, we're to be treat, every human being is to be treated with dignity and with honor and with the respect that is due to an image bearer of God. Um, this is something that, again, we, there's a lot to pray for. There's a lot that can grieve our hearts. Um, I've, not, I've not mentioned it here lately, and it's not, it's not going to put an end to all of it, yet it's still totally something to celebrate. We should celebrate good things when they happen, and that is uh, kind of the reversal of, of Roe v. Wade that happened in our nation here um, by the Supreme Court a couple weeks ago. That's a good thing. That's a good thing, and it's good to celebrate the victories along the way, because even little babies that are still in the womb, they are image bearers of God from the moment of conception. And God's faithful. He's good, and he's at work. But even though we're image bearers of God, that next line there in the doctrinal statement, but that through Adam's sin, the race fell and inherited a sinful nature. Now, <clears throat> we use this word it's not in the Bible, but it's, it's a word that's been used throughout history to kind of describe it, of total depravity, okay? And it, it's a good word. I'm not against the word. It's not the most, maybe the most accurate term, but it gets the job done. Um, we believe that man is totally depraved. If you want to talk about the sinfulness of man in our nature, the Bible on no level holds back <laughs> at all about speaking how sinful we are. Now, um, maybe you've heard that there, there is an offensiveness to the gospel, here it comes, okay? Because the Bible, and I just want you to listen to the Bible's testimony about man, and you can read some of these scriptures with me on the back of your handout if you've got it. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only ever evil continually. This is by Genesis chapter 6 already, like, like just in chapters one and two, God's creating everything, and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Chapter three, they fall already by chapter six. The intention of man's heart is only ever evil continually. One of the things that gets overlooked all the time with the flood, like the flood was a judgment. God wiped out every human being on the face of the earth except for Noah and his family, who was still sinful, but was in some way, with the revelation that he had, was trusting God. But the thoughts of their hearts was only ever evil continually, and the thing that gets overlooked is another part of the judgment of the flood was that after the flood, man only generally lived to about 120 years old, okay? Noah, before the flood, was 500 years old before he even had kids. Adam was 900 and some years old. Uh, uh, pop quiz Bible trivia time, if you remember this from Sunday school, who was the oldest man in the Bible? Anybody know? Methuselah. Oh, you're all so good at Bible trivia. How old was he? 960. You guys, man. Tell you what, I'm not messing around this morning. Yes, Methuselah, 969. But after the flood, another huge part of the judgment 
was that man was only going to live to be about 120 years old. Now, that, that's big if you think about it. But in those seven, eight, nine hundred years that God was giving them to live previously, what were they doing? Nothing but concocting sin. And if God did not shorten our life, we would do the exact same thing. And in his judgments is always mingled mercy. And there's mercy in his judgments. And from the beginning of the Bible, the first two chapters are good. The last two chapters are really, really good. New heavens and new earth come down. We're going to dwell with God forever. But between those first two chapters and those last two chapters, you've got a mess. And we're the ones making the mess. It is sin. It's not just a mistake. It's not just a little slip up. It's not just a little accident. It is wickedness. It is cosmic treason. It is rebellion against the creator of the universe. And then you have God dealing with that sin in some way, shape, or form. That's what the storyline of the Bible is about. And ultimately, he brings about redemption through Jesus Christ. And even in these judgments throughout the Old Testament and the giving of the law, it was a restraining, it was a holding back of evil, but it was not the ultimate answer to our sin. Psalm 51 3 and 6, David says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity when he is born, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Was David just speaking about him? No, it's a statement for all of mankind. He is speaking about him. He's confessing his sin to God in this moment. But in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Though we are image bearers of God, even little babies in the womb, but even from the moment of conception, there is sinfulness and brokenness woven into us. Ephesians 2, 1 and 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of all mankind. No one gets an exception. We are this by nature. What, what, the reason I keep emphasizing nature, and we'll talk more about this as we go on, but the reason you sin is because you're a sinner. You do bad things, but there is something wrong with you that needs to be redeemed and forgiven. Colossians 1, 21 and 22, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh and in his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, here's what some of you might be thinking at some point. You're just thinking, Eric, I, just, I know that there's people like this out there, but I'm not that bad. My family's not that bad. We go to church. I grew up in church. I was born in Sunday number one. I was, I was there. Sunday morning, Sunday evening. And here's what the Bible would say about that. The Bible would say that even your righteousness is as filthy rags. Is it, and we don't have time to go into all of this, but if you'll read Romans, the second half of chapter one, and then two, and then three, and we'll, we'll, I'll, I'm gonna read some from three here in just a second. Paul talks about the natural man who suppresses the truth of God, and he does it by just denying it 
by believing pagan lies and just goes headlong into debauchery and sin and they basically invent ways of doing evil and celebrate it, which we do, even still today, in our country. But then he moves on into, cha- into chapter two and he speaks about, I believe it's the, the first part is about these Gentile religious people, people that aren't just going headlong into sin, who have some, who have some morals. And, and you know what Paul rebukes them for? He rebukes them for judging the other people because they've set themselves up as the judge, thinking that they in themselves have some sort of standard of righteousness, which is in and of itself sinful. And then he speaks to the Jewish people who have the law. They say, we've got the law. We're not that bad. No, but you're not good. Either you're not holy. And so some people go headlong into their sin and do things that are outwardly extremely depraved and just give themselves over to it and deny the very existence of God. But other people try to clean themselves up through man-made religion is the takeaway, which is just as evil. And if you read about the people that God really, or or that Jesus um, really said some very sharp things to in the Gospels, it was the Pharisees. It was the religious folks who were convinced that they were righteous because of their religious deeds and because of their religious, and here's the one that stinks, ancestry. Well, Abraham's my forefather. John the Baptist said, God can, God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. It means nothing. Who is your Savior? And then at the end of Romans chapters 1, 2, and then into 3, Paul kind of sums it up like this, and this is on your paper here, Romans 3, 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And just listen to the repetitive stuff here. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. None is righteous. No, not one. Sin, a very formal definition here, very very quickly. Sin can be defined different ways, um, but a very kind of textbook fundamental definition. Um, this is taken from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. This is pretty, pretty standard definition, um, theologically speaking, is that sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So um, even back in the garden, they had one command, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They broke that command. They did it. That was an act. That was wrong. Uh, even in the giving of the Ten Commandments, though, you, you see God beginning to command even attitudes in the way that we should, we should respond. Uh, one of the Ten Commandments is that thou should not covet. That is even just to have the, the attitude or the desire to have something that is not yours, that is your neighbor's, whether it's his house or his wife or, or whatever. Um, and that is commanded. We're commanded not to have that attitude. Um, uh, also in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks uh, a bunch of, you know, he says, you, you've heard it said, uh, you know, do not commit adultery. But I said, if, if you even look after a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. So he's moving to the, the heart level attitudes. And those are just as sinful, okay? 
um, but we don't focus on those because we don't really see those, but God does. And then not only is it any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act or attitude, but also in our very nature. And this is what I, I pressed earlier, that we sin because we are sinners by our very nature. In Colossians 2, verses 11 through 13, it says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without the hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made alive. We were, we were dead, just like Ephesians 2 says. We were dead, but now we have been raised in him. Um, if you'll flip to some of these quickly on the front of your, of your hand out there. Let me just read the, the first one from the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 6. It says, Our first parents, uh, uh, being seduced by the subtlety and temptations of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. And, and this is important because when I speak of total depravity, it's not that every single person is as bad as they could be, but it's that every single part of your being has been tainted by sin. Your mind, your will, your emotions, and also your actions. And that is that there's no part of us that is pure, okay? And, and again, I'll, I'll probably come back to this, this later, but if you'll just take that and take what the Bible says and compare it with kind of the cultural narrative that we're taught, and not even just in the culture anymore, but this cultural narrative that has undoubtedly worked its way into the church, that you're really not that bad. It's just somebody stood in your way, and you're, and you're like a seed that is pure and good. And you just need to have that hard shell kind of broken off. And so the beauty of who you are can just sprout up and make beautiful things. That is a lie. At the core of who you are, the Bible testifies from beginning to end that we are rotten. And we need redeemed in Christ we don't just need tweaked. We don't just need modified. We don't just need remodeled. We need bulldozed and a new creation. Needs to come. The Bible doesn't actually speak about bulldozing, but it does speak about crucifixion. It speaks about dying with, with Christ. This is, what, this is what he came to do. And it starts in here, folks. Jump down to the J.C. Ryle quote. J.C. Ryle, old school, good guy. <coughs> in England, back in the 1600s, I believe. I, very solid quote here. He says, The sinfulness of man does not begin from without, but from within. It is not the result of bad training in early years. It is not picked up from bad companions and bad examples, as some weak Christians are too fond of saying. No, it is a family disease which we all inherit from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and with which we are born, created in the image of God, innocent and righteous at first. Our parents fell from the original righteousness and became sinful and corrupt. And from the day, that day to this, all men and women are born in the image of fallen Adam and Eve and inherit a heart and nature inclined towards evil. As the Bible says, by one man sin entered into the world. 
Um, we, we think that the battle's always out here, that the evil's always out there. And there is evil out there. I'm not saying that there's not. But the Bible would first and foremost tell you not to begin to look there, but to look here. And the cultural narrative that you can just look inward and find some sort of hope, that is always going to lead you down a path of deception and destruction. <laughs> it's, fu- it's, fun. it's not funny, but it is kind of funny. We, like, follow your heart. That might be the worst advice ever. Do you understand? Do you understand? <laughs> just follow your heart. That's terrible. Okay, um, Mark, Mark chapter 7, again, it's, a, it's the last scripture on the bottom of your page, and he said to them, then are you also, out without, also without understanding, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach? So the Pharisees were getting on Jesus and his disciples because they didn't wash their hands properly before they ate, and Jesus is like, that has nothing to do with anything. Uh, it says, thus he declared all foods clean, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Now listen, for from within, out of the heart of man, out of the heart, come, and, and listen to the, 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 the gamut or the swath of what he lists here. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. The greatest enemy that we need defeated is not out there somewhere, it's in here. And so we are invited to be crucified with Christ that we might live, be made, be made new. Um, we can't do anything about this, folks. We need a redeemer. Jeremiah said, said it like this, he says, like, can a leopard change his spots? If he could, then you who are evil might be able to do good, but you can't. You can't do good on your own any more than a leopard can change his spots. And all this sin, it absolutely comes, was rooted in the lie of Satan at the beginning. So Satan, sin, system of the world, they're all on the same team. Richard Baxter um, again, a Puritan pastor, uh, again, speaking about us being made in God's image. I, I like what he says here about, um, about Satan want us, wanting to remake us into his image in some twisted way. He says, sin dwells in hell and holiness in heaven. Remember that every temptation is from the devil to make you like himself. Is that when you sin, you co-participate with the devil and are being made into his image. Remember, when you sin, that you are learning and imitating of the devil and are so far like him, and the end of all is that you may feel his pains. If hellfire be not good, then sin is not good. Is that Satan came ultimately to uh, mock everything, everything that God does, and that's what he did. Can the leopard change his spots? No. Can we who are evil do good? No. And if you understand this and what the Bible teaches about our nature, then we should say with the disciples the exact same thing that they said to Jesus after the rich young ruler came to them. Who, again, we don't have time to look at this, but the rich young ruler, he was a good old boy, man. 
He, he was keeping the commandments of God. In other words, he grew up, I mean, just a brief, brief profile. He grew up in church. He was seeking to keep the commandments. He had some money. He was obviously a good steward, wise, had some business savvy. He, he was what we would call today, or at least I call, you know, especially here in East Holmes, East Holmes County or Holmes County in general, wherever you're coming from. He was a good old boy. He was a good old boy. Everybody wanted him on their team. And yet, he went away because Jesus told him that he wanted all of him. He wanted him to sell everything and come follow him, that he might have treasure in heaven. And here's, if we're understanding the depravity of man, even the best of us, like the rich young ruler, the best of us in the natural sense, then we should say with the disciples what they said in Matthew chapter 19. They said, who, who then can be saved? Because Jesus said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. They go, who, who can be saved? And here's Jesus' response. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Amen? We need a Savior. We need a Savior so desperately. And one of the ways, and here's why I want to frame this. The Savior is Jesus. But one of the ways that the Bible speaks of Jesus is as the second Adam as the second Adam, which is especially applicable to what we're speaking about today in regards to um, our sin nature and being born in Adam and inheriting a sin nature from him is that the Bible speaks of Jesus as the second Adam. You'll find this in 1 Corinthians 15. You'll find it again um, in Romans chapter 5. Luke also alludes to it in the way that he kind of sets up the temptation with Jesus in the wilderness and the genealogy at the beginning of his book. But in Romans chapter 5, if you want to turn there, I've got a little bit of Romans 5 um, on your sheet, but it's not the right portion. But in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. I'll give you a second to find it. Paul begins to make this compare, comparison and contrast and weave this theological idea together of Adam and Jesus being the second and better Adam. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Why did all men sin? Because we were in Adam. So if you just back it up, and a little side note, I don't have time to go into this whole big thing, but this is why, it, it, like, a literal six-day creation, that actually matters. It actually matters. is because we, we all sinned in Adam. God created one man, one woman, and from him, them, every nation of every tribe, tongue, language, and people throughout the world today and that has ever existed. Okay, but this matters because if it wasn't just one man and one woman in the beginning that God created, then there might be some sort of other race that's a little bit more holy or whatever. And the Bible doesn't teach that anywhere, but of course man accepts this and sometimes even within the church we go, ah, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's no big deal. You can believe whatever you want. Science says this. I don't care what science says. I care about what the Bible says. Um, and the Bible says that there was one man and one woman and from them Every people that have ever existed came into existence. And we were all, if you back it all up, so again, I'm Eric, my dad is Rick, his dad was Noah, I think his dad was Marnelius, so I'm, you know, Marnelius is Noah, Rick's Eric. Um, like, but you back it all up, boop, 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 all the way back to Adam, everybody. We were in Adam and Eve, physiologically, 
but also were spiritual beings created in the image of God. We were in them when they sinned. And the Bible holds us accountable in Adam for our sin. And we inherited a sin nature from their breaking of the commandment. But we, and we are guilty even at the, from the moment of conception because of that, because we are sinners by nature. And it is because of that nature that we do the things that we do. Okay? So he's saying here we're all guilty in Adam. Okay? Um, and then it jumped down to verse 15. Again, just hitting this quickly. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man, Adam's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For judgment came following one trespass and brought condemnation. Again, what Adam did. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, again, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He goes on, verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus Christ, his perfect life that he lived on the earth, culminating in the sacrifice of the cross. By one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. It is such good news that you and I, who are by nature children of wrath, rebels against God, we can be changed. The very core of who we are And in this life, yes, we continue to struggle with sin, but there is coming a day when the Bible says that all those who have trusted in Christ for salvation, we will see him and we will be like him. And I'll tell you what, the longer I live, I'm, I'm, I, I turned 41 the other week, last week we were off, I wasn't here and it was kind of our vacation week this summer and I turned 41 and I, you know, that's, that's old to my boys, they tell me all the time that I'm old. Um, so if you ever want to come up and tell me that I still look young, I'd appreciate it. I'll take it. You know, but I, I'm old to some, not, not to other. But the longer I live, the more I say with Paul, like he did in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then he answers the question, and he says, praise be to God through Jesus Christ. Because there is a day coming That not by my works, not by my righteousness, not by anything that I've done, but because I have fled to Christ, because Christ has saved me. That I'm going to see him, and I'm going to be made like him. And all the wickedness and the wretchedness that I still hold within me, it will be destroyed forever. That righteousness, it is such good news Do you understand why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his what? And his righteousness. He he holds out righteousness for us as like the greatest of all gifts. But we go, well, righteousness, I mean, I I don't really need that. I need purpose. I need more money. I need more stuff. God says, no, you don't. The the thing that makes you sad, the thing that makes you depressed, the thing, all the pain, all the suffering of this life, it is because of unrighteousness. And in the gospel, we are offered this, this amazing gift 
to be made righteous. But see, if I can just, if I can just shoot really straight with you this morning, many of us have believed a watered-down, half-true gospel. We don't think that's what the gospel is. We think the gospel is all about, you know, God just helping us along the way and that we'll just, you know, so we can reach our goals and reach our fulfillment and be all that we can be. Because, you know, something out there somewhere, it just, it stopped us. We were on this glorious journey and something got in the way. That's not the way the Bible speaks. It's because of sin and Christ came to make us righteous and it is unbelievably good news. Such good news. Quick rundown of the comparisons between Adam and Christ, not only in this passage, but in other places in the Bible. Adam is the man of dust. Jesus is the man from heaven. Adam uniquely formed from the dust of the earth. Jesus, uniquely born of a virgin, came from heaven again, always existing in all of eternity with the Father. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Adam was the representative head of the first creation. Christ is the representative head of the new creation. Adam did not withstand the temptation from Satan. Jesus perfectly withstood every temptation from Satan. Um, The old creation which Adam ushered in because of his sin. The old creation is passing away because of Adam's sin. The new creation will never pass away because of Christ's righteousness. We are all born once into Adam, into this old creation and part of the kingdom of this world. But if we will be born again, if we are born again, we are born into Christ and we become a part of the new creation and part of Christ's kingdom. It, it was an act of taking from a tree that brought all this death into the world but it was Christ's act of giving himself up on a tree that brings life to all who will receive it. And one day, if we've trusted Christ, just as we now resemble the man Adam, so one day we will perfectly resemble Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 47 and 49, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so shall we also bear the image of the man of heaven. It's the good news of the gospel. The verse that's probably been quoted here more than any other verse since we started the church, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. But then the next verse, verse 10, says, for we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. That's what it means. But listen, it says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When it says created in Christ Jesus, he's not speaking of the first creation. The first creation, because of sin, it it doesn't do any good works. Not good in the sense of before a holy God. But when we are born again, we are then recreated, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Um, Jesus is amazing. (laughs) That's my point. Jesus is amazing. And the righteous life that he lived... Uh, again, the longer I live, the more I stand in awe of it. 
worship team, you can come up and I'll begin to close. A couple of implications, several of them I've, I've kind of mentioned already. One, stop looking to yourself or looking inward or looking to man to find some of your deepest questions and longings. You will not have them answered there. Um, God does not bear our image. We bear his image. And it's in looking to him that we find life and we find hope. And it's why Jesus is the one that we proclaim. Week in and week out in Colossians 1, Paul says, him, being Jesus, him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that so powerfully works within me. Look away from yourself and look to Christ. Secondly, and I've already touched on this, but folks, psychology, self-help, and human measures are not the answer. They maybe can have their place, but they are not the ultimate answer. They cannot ultimately help you. You must be born again. You must be made new. It's a miracle. By the Spirit, by the Spirit of God. Gerhard Ford is, I'm reading a book of his lately. Um, not a very well-known guy, at least I didn't until Mark Russell gave me this guy's book a little while back. Um, but he, he, he speaks of what I've described already a little bit about um, this narrative that the world offers us is these two narratives that you, that you find is that there's either the story of the cross or the, there's the, the story of glory. The story of glory is the one that natural man believes. Um, he says the most common overarching story we tell about ourselves is what we will call the glory story. We came from glory and are bound for glory. Of course, in between, we somehow seem to have gotten derailed, whether by design or accident. We don't quite know. But that is only a temporary inconvenience to be fixed by proper religious effort. What we need is to get back on the glory road. And so the story is told in countless variations. He goes on, the hallmark of a theology of glory is that we will always consider grace something of a supplement to whatever is left of our human will and power. It will always, in the end, hold out for some sort of free will. And then he says this, and this is so insightful. He says, theology then becomes the business of making theological explanations attractive to the human will. And I, I, I could sit on that for days. Because as you look around at the church in America, that is 100% what we've done. We've simply repackaged this glory story to the human will with some religious Jesus perfume on it. But at the core, it stinks. He says, sooner or later, a disastrous erosion of language sets in. It must constantly be adjusted to made appealing. Gradually, it sinks to the level of nothing but superficial sentimentality. But he compares that to what he calls the cross story. And here, to describe the cross story, he just quotes from Martin Luther, the great reformer, and he says this. This is Martin Luther. He says, you must get this thought through your head and not doubt that you are the one who is torturing Christ. For your sins have surely brought this about. My sins 
Therefore, when you see the nails piercing Christ's hands, you can be certain that it is our work. And when you behold the crown of thorns, you may rest assured that these are our evil thoughts. That's the story of the cross. That's the story that the Bible holds out. Is that Jesus died the death that we deserved. Don't look to psychology, human means. Third, very quickly, it doesn't help to water down the gospel. It doesn't help to tell people that they're really good when they're really not. That's just a lie. It helps to tell them the truth about what the Bible says in Scripture. And lastly, and I'll be done here, just as simple as this sounds, every human being, whether you're on the face of the earth, and if you're here this morning, whether you know Christ or not, I want to say this, you owe him your life. Because you were created in his image. In Luke chapter 20, they're trying to catch Jesus in a trap so they can accuse him. And they come and they say, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but teach the true way of God. And they say, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar? In other words, do we need to pay taxes? And Jesus goes, bring me a coin, bring me a denarius. You guys know this story? And he holds it up and it's got Caesar's image on it. He says, whose image and likeness is on it? And they go, Caesar's? And Jesus says, well then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, his image, and then, but he says, and render to God the things that are God's. So get this. He's saying, well, it's got Caesar's picture on it. Give it to him. But he says, render to God the things that are God's. Whose image and likeness is on you? His. Your life is not your own, folks. And I would urge you this morning to flee to Christ. Stand with me. We're going to take communion. If you're helping serve, you can come down.